You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on global business so you can invest better across the Pacific Rim. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee. 2023 is going down as a year of diverging fortunes. China's reopening in late 2022 sent growth expectations soaring, but its economy wound up struggling, and overseas investors looked elsewhere. In the U.S., hawkish central bankers kept interest rates climbing, finishing the year above 5%, but expectations of a softer landing and lower interest rates ahead has powered American stock markets to near all-time highs. 2023 was the year India surpassed China as the world's most populous country. It became a magnet for foreign investment and the new growth symbol for emerging markets. Is the Fed pivot for real? And what does this mean for Asian currencies and bonds? Can Asian stocks recapture some limelight from the U.S. and the Magnificent Seven? Let's bring in three Bloomberg intelligence experts to get their take on 2024. Marvin Chen, Senior Asia Equity Strategist. Stephen Chu, Chief Asia Currency and Rate Strategist. And Timothy Tan, Asia Fixed Income and Credit Strategist, all based in Hong Kong. Gentlemen, welcome. Hello, everybody. Hey, Tom. Hey, John. Thank you for the invitation. Hi, Stephen. The Fed just finished its last meeting of 2023 and appears to have signaled a pivot. The dot plot indicates 75 basis points of rate cuts in 2024, and the market's probably pricing in 150 basis points. Is this finally the end of the 14-year US dollar bull market? Yeah, I think actually if you look back at last year and this year, what really drives the FX market, in particular the dollar, it's really just the Fed. So last year, what happened was market um, got caught wrong-footed. So basically, the Fed had to write, hike rates very aggressively to a higher rate. So market has to reprice to a higher terminal rate. Now this year, the dollar strength was less material, but market still had to price in for higher for longer, and that longer part stood out. So the dollar was still resilient, at least in the range this year. So for next year, I think it's uh, very highly likely that the Fed will have to revert to a rate cut. Now, of course, the timing and the intensity of a rate cut is a big uncertainty. So whether the Fed can cut really in the first quarter, whether they can cut 150 pips for the entire year, nobody really knows. But the direction is actually quite clear because at least we know now we are probably at the terminal rate. So with that in mind, of course, the path is going to be very bumpy, but the ending of the Asian currencies is going to be better next year for sure. Because if you look at incrementally, Asian currencies actually get better against the dollar. So next year, Unless the Fed, of course, if they really have to hike rate, so that's against all consensus. But as long as they really cut, then Asian currencies will have a good year next year. Okay, Stephen, under your base case, which Asian currencies could perform the best in 2024? So assuming that at the end of next year, we're going to see a weaker dollar, then the currencies that's going to outperform in Asia are usually the low yielders and the high beta currencies. So namely South Korean won, Taiwan dollar, and Thai baht. So these are the outperformers this quarter, actually, whenever the dollar drops, just because they underperform so much during a higher US yield driven dollar uptrend. So when the dollar really topples next year, then these are the currencies that can really shine. Stephen Chu, what's the biggest risk to the Fed cutting rates too much too quickly? Of course, inflation. I mean, like it's always about inflation. And the job market, we have to know that is still very resilient. Now, I know um, the non-farm payroll data has softened, has missed market expectation. But if you stretch out, actually, over the last 12 months, we are still talking about over uh, 200,000 of job ads. Actually, 
230k. And the unemployment rate is still like 3.7%. And that's not a crisis level unemployment rate, meaning that the labor market is slowing, but it's still very tight. So if the Fed really worries about a recession, they want to have a soft landing, of course, right? So if they cut rates preemptively and too aggressively, the problem will be the job market will actually heat up and then wages will stay high. Because right now we're still talking about a wage growth of 4% and that's too high to bring core inflation down. Stephen, what's your view on the Japanese yen? Will the Bank of Japan finally end two decades of extraordinary monetary policy and finally raise interest rates? Oh, actually, um, that's two different questions. Now, firstly, we do think that Japan will have to move away from its stimulus measure right now, but basically it's so complicated. So they have so many tools right now. They're using negative interest rate policy. They're using yield curve control. So this they will probably move away from. So they will just abandon these. Like some people even talk about like as fast as like December, they're going to end the negative interest rate or early next year. Now, we think that they're going to do that at some point next year, probably not as soon as what market has expected, but they have to. If you look at the fundamentals, now they have reason to do that. The economy, the third quarter data is a little bit weaker, but all in all, this year is still a pretty good year for Japan. Um, and then like inflation, that really the key metric is actually holding up. If you look at the um, core core inflation where BOJ always looks at, which is the inflation excluding fresh food and energy prices is actually still at 4% and um, basically double the BOG's target. And that's not slowing fast enough. So meaning that actually using this argument, they can really move away. And more importantly, right now, the Bank of Japan is probably disrupting the JGB market because they're owning over half of the market. Now compared to the Fed, they only own about a third. Now that is a problem. If there's a market that basically central bank owns for private investors, whether local or overseas, you don't want to play in that because like you are being dictated basically in terms of direction. So the Bank of Japan has been waiting for the best time to actually withdraw their presence in the market. So now it's probably a good time. So that's why since last December and then this year, they actually slowly, slowly move the U-curve control cap. And next year they can just take that away. But the thing is like to your question next year, even if they take all these two measures away, it doesn't mean that they're going to hike rates. Because taking away the negative interest rate policy is somewhat complicated. It's probably for next time. What they will do is probably they will reinstate what they had before the negative interest rate policy, which is the three-tier rate system. So they will use the core rate, which is the old policy rate, and they will reinstate that. And probably they wouldn't hike that, just reinstate to where it was. I think it's a 0.1%. So you can say it's a rate hike, but it's also not a rate hike. And last but not least, even though if they remove these two um, abnormal measures, they will have to keep QE in. They will still have to buy JGBs, even though without a yield of control, just because the market will be so volatile and they will have to keep it stable. So that's why it's still an easing per se, but definitely compared to this year, it's a further normalization. You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence. By the way, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you may be listening to us. Of course, more stars are better. Your feedback matters, and we love hearing from our listeners. Marvin Chen, you've been listening to Stephen Chu talking about the implications for rising interest rates. Where do you see rates going what trajectory do you see and how is that going to impact equities in your coverage area 
Yeah, I mean, as Stephen mentioned, the direction of the Fed rate cuts is pretty certain at this point. We're going to get uh, some cuts next year, which will obviously be good for emerging market fund flows um, as it reduces the currency and interest rate risk. But we're still a bit mixed on the impact. Of course, Fed rate cuts are good, but um, I think we need to look at the reasoning behind uh, whether we get faster than expected rate cuts next year, whether it's due to inflation coming under control or if the U.S. economy is slowing sharper than expected, or even perhaps if we see a recessionary scenario. Obviously, you know, emerging markets uh, – equities cannot perform under a scenario where the developed markets are in a recession. So we think um, the reasoning behind the rate cuts will be important to watch, although overall it is generally positive for stocks. Is it your sense that U.S. stocks have gotten ahead of themselves? Um, yeah, in terms of valuations, you know, the U.S. Uh, S&P 500 trading close to 20 times here in Asia. We have China, single-digit PE. Um, going into next year, we think the Asia region will have some uh, catch-up to do. Uh, as Stephen mentioned, South Korea, Taiwan, as these currencies outperform, so will the stock market. We see uh, 2024 being a year of tech. Uh, you know, we're going to get a rebound in the semiconductor cycle, some bottoming out of smartphone demand, which can drive earnings growth in some of these tech-heavy regions. Global investors have been investing into India and Japan equity markets. Which markets rank highly on your scorecard in 2024? Um, we just did an update of our emerging market scorecard. Um, within Asia, India and Vietnam still sit near the top of the scorecard, largely because of the large kind of uh, foreign direct investment we're seeing. These two markets are seen as beneficiaries of the China plus one strategy, kind of diversifying the supply chains away from China. Um, Taiwan and Korea are also moving up our scorecard. Obviously, as I mentioned, we have the tech rebound. We expected tech rebound into next year, but in these markets, valuations are becoming a little bit stretched. So um, earnings will have to deliver in 2024 to kind of uh, back up the valuations in these markets. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the NASDAQ is up 40%. It's been driven by the magnificent seven stocks. That's Apple, NVIDIA, Alphabet, Microsoft, Tesla, Meta, Amazon. They've captured all the world's attention. Do you think the magnificent seven stocks almost have to break for investors to get excited about emerging markets? I was talking to some clients, you know, obviously a lot of the Magnificent Seven, the tech, NVIDIA has been a big story this year, but their chips are manufactured in Asia, right? We have the Samsung, uh, TSMC, SK Hynix in the region, but we have to think about they're the hardware makers while the, the chip designers are the NVIDIAs of the world. So um, next year, if we do see volume scale up, a strong demand for generative AI, um, we do see the chip makers seeing a rebound next year. But you're right, there needs to be some um, normalization within the U.S. stock market before investors can become more excited about the Asian markets. And part of that may be driven by a slowdown within the U.S. economy. Marvin, I noticed that no one has uh, mentioned China at all so far. Let's, let's discuss the big <laughs> elephant in the room. As we speak, it's the middle of December, major Chinese stock indices are down anywhere from 7 to 16%. In contrast to the NASDAQ, which is up a whopping 40%, you mentioned Korea, Taiwan, India are also up the double digit. Are equity investors just giving up on China? 
Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if we think about the huge inflows at the beginning of this year, around $25 billion U.S. dollars in the first quarter, we think about it as like fast money uh, looking to capitalize on China's reopening. All of that has basically exited over the past six months. So the EM funds are really just left with core exposure to China. Our latest review of the top 100 EM funds did show that China exposure has fallen to a five-year low with um, about 74% either neutral to underweight on China. Um, but even amid kind of all this pessimism, we have seen a few funds move from underweight to overweight China in the third quarter, but it's still very much a contrarian call. But, um, you know, we are seeing some sense of urgency from policymakers to kind of turn around this foreign investment sentiment. So what's your view on China going into 2024, Marvin? Given the valuations and given some of the multiple rounds of policy easing we've seen uh, over the past several months, we think there is a window for some moderate re-rating for Chinese stocks in the first half of the year, especially as policy easing feeds through. Uh, the Fed pause and even a potential pivot in, in early next year could be enough to allow for more monetary policy support as well. Um, but further out, we think uh, volatility could pick up again as the U.S. election cycle begins to heat up. Geopolitical noise, uh, U.S.-China tensions could be back in the headlines towards the middle of next year again. Marvin Chen, Timothy Tan, Stephen Chu, all with Bloomberg Intelligence. Is it an overstatement to suggest that there is a crisis of confidence in investing in China? And if there is... What will it take to restore investor confidence? Or are investors at the point where they're just not ready to look back? This is a tough question to answer, largely because we're talking about animal spirits, right? We are not talking about maths. If you're looking at fundamentals, you're looking at valuations, things look very different. You look at growth, it's growing in real terms, it's growing in nominal terms. But when people talk about China, they are worried about one thing, the vagaries of policy. Now, policy itself, ironically, I have said this many times, but it is always well telegraphed. Unfortunately, it may be telegraphed way too long ahead of the market and market forgets about it. So perhaps investing in China requires people firstly to understand how the government works. And perhaps once you understand how the government works and how they telegraph their ideas, their position, their policy direction, perhaps three or four years ahead of implementation, then you may be able to get good money out of the markets. But you require a change in mindset. The Chinese market is not the US market. It is not where the market can do it. Regulations can swing forth and back within six months. It doesn't work that way. And sometimes you have to understand if the Chinese government is planning for something, they are probably going to do it. Yeah, I agree with Timothy. Um, for China, I think uh, you have to take a longer view on um, the policy reforms. Even in this past Central Economic Work Conference, a lot of the topics were kind of a more longer term. And I think they're okay with the growth situation right now. Obviously, it's not good. But um, I think that the general view is that they feel that they have it under control. So they're kind of focusing on, I guess, developing the forest and kind of missing out on the trees at the moment. So yeah, you have to take a longer view on kind of the policy reform. Stephen Chu, any thoughts on that? Yeah, on currencies is a little bit different just because for China, unlike South Korea and like Taiwan market, it's not dependent on equity on bond flows. It's not as open as say for South Korea and Taiwan market. So actually cross-border equity and bond flows wouldn't move the currency. It's still about structural factors like the basic balance. So FDI and trade surplus. Now the problem here is the trade surplus is actually narrowing. 
And then FDI has turned net negative this year, as you have, everybody has read from the news. So those are the stickier drivers that's actually against the yuan, and that's not going to go away like equity and bond flows. That's going to be still there next year. So even if market like sentiment turns better for the currency, that's not going to change next year for currency per se. And of course, one very important driver is actually the reopening of the border will hurt the currency because there are more tourism flying out. So basically buying other currencies, having their diving trips and all that, selling the CNY, and that's not going to help. That's still there and people will keep traveling and more and more next year. For example, Chinese tourists, they're not all back to Thailand yet. They're going to come back next year meaning that that's going to hurt the currency. So for the currency space, actually, it wouldn't help too much, even though if, say, animal spirit is back, it's more down to fundamentals. And if we look at it beyond the dollar, if you look at the Chinese currency against a basket of currency, it has been very resilient. It's only down by like less than a percent this year, for example, if you look at the CFS basket. So it's not that weak, but it's not that strong either. Now, against the dollar for next year, it's really down to the dollar. If the dollar really drops, then of course, the Chinese yuan will appreciate against the dollar, but probably less so compared to the rest of the other Asian currencies. We, we mentioned about South Korean won and Thailand dollar. So that's one of, one of the examples. Would you describe yourself as a yuan bear or a yuan bull? Oh, never. It's always a bull or a neutral. Okay. <laughs> I mean, for the longer term, for the for the longer term, for the longer term, okay. which we are talking about three to five years or even ten years, I'm always a bull. bull. Yes, for obvious you. reason. Now, if you just look at how the dollar took over from the British pound, now that's probably what's going to happen. Now we're not going to talk about that this time, but you can see that actually, if it's not going to challenge the dollar, at least it's going to challenge the yen. It's going to challenge the sterling in terms of importance. So that's going to eat into the currency strength. And also, it's actually advantageous to China to have a stronger currency. But in the near term, it's all cyclical, basically. So, yeah, neutral to bullish. Timothy Tan is nodding his head. Yes, I'm always nodding my head when he says that. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy, if we, if we could yes. talk about uh, Asia credit, and in particular, you know, high-yield bonds have been a disaster in 2023. Most China property bonds are trading, I think, below 10 cents. I think the average is 6 cents to the yeah. dollar. But having said that, we just look, the Asia-Pacific Jackie Index is still positive. It's still up 4.5%. Are you surprised that Asia credit is actually held up so well this year? Well, not so much surprised as depressed. One thing I realized, as I mentioned before, Asia doesn't really have a liquid bond market, at least in the dollar space. So when you do not have a liquid bond market, you can't really price risk. Now, if you can't price risk, well, all your performance is fluff until it starts repricing risk. Now, the big question about Asia has always been, are spreads be this tight? We have high yield trading below 100 basis points, some bonds. We got obviously Chinese real estate trading at default levels and recovery levels. However, if you were to understand, the most difficult part to understand is investment grade. Why? Investment grade bonds in Asia are tighter than the US. Think of it that way. In, that in the currency, they're, they're, not, they're not domiciled in. So that is right. one of those anomalies that appear when the illiquidity takes over the ability of investors to properly trade out their positions. So this is not going to change. This is going to happen continuing into next year until something breaks. And that break is, may come from a liquidation crisis, which can happen and could happen globally simply because of Basel IV. Why Basel IV? Basel IV regulations next year will materially change the terms and conditions of security financing. And the objective of Basel IV, that clause, 
is to reduce market leverage. Market deleveraging throughout history always leads to significant price volatility. So that itself tells me that the market may be unprepared for a situation like this. And would you say that's a counter-consensus view, Timothy? Well, I am pretty much counter-consensus most of the time. <laughs> well, it's counter-consensus because, well, it's not so much counter-consensus. I think the, the big problem is that nobody wants to talk about it. I have talked to many clients and investors, and they have come and said, somebody should be talking about this more often, but nobody is. Now, the big issue is obviously, uh, do people know the risks? Yes. Can people do anything about it? No. That is the big problem. Because even you have the, for example, you see that I need to sell these bonds when the time comes. It's just that I can't even reduce my position today. That creates that, you know, I have to wait and see, and see what happens when it actually happens. Is it counter consensus? Yes and no. Uh, some other people are talking about it. Is it uh, one that the mainstream understands? Probably not. Okay. And uh, obviously, in the back of everybody's mind is that, hey, if the markets were to crash, the central banks would come in to save us. So what opportunities are there next year for Asia Credit in 2024? Ironically, Chinese real estate. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, kidding aside. Uh, I believe that currently, to be fair, if you were to have a balanced portfolio, balanced meaning if you yep. follow our Bloomberg uh, Asia X Japan Hayu Index and balance it correctly, saying that you need to buy Chinese real estate, you need to buy Pakistan, you need to have Sri Lanka in your books, right? then the yield itself is sufficient to cushion against much, much, a lot of volatility, a lot of downside. But if you decide to focus on only the low yielders, then the volatility becomes very high. The risk of volatility becomes very high. So it's a very unusual situation where portfolio construction from an investor perspective is going to be very, very key to portfolio resilience in 2024 in the higher space. Well, uh, I'd love to ask each of you one last question. We've got two wars going on in the world right now. We've got a number of elections in 2024. What do you think is the one black swan event that could really shake markets next year? Kim, you want to go first? I guess you'll I cover got too many. I <laughs> yeah, too many. <laughs> too many. But if you Give were us to the pick, one that keeps you awake at night. The one that keeps me awake at night is actually Basel, as I mentioned. People do not understand how significant this is. All we need to look is to look at two scenarios in the past 15 years to understand how bad it is. 2008 and March 2020. Now, in both these scenarios, one led to the global financial crisis. The other led to three central banks printing $10 trillion. These are two scenarios that will keep any investor up at night. And unfortunately, since 2020, $10 trillion has been added to the markets, which means leverage now is much higher. Any sort of disruption to that will keep anybody up at night. Stephen Chu. Yeah, I'll try to be short. Um, so geopolitical risk is going to get worse. Now, if you look at it that way, since the US-China trade war in 2017-18, things have gotten worse. People used to talk about like former US president, when Trump is gone, then things will get better. It didn't. Last year, we had Russia-Ukraine. This year, we had Israel-Hamas. Things are going to get worse. And if you look back in human history, after an extended period of money printing, so after GFC, basically 10 years, and then after an extended period of fiscal stimulus, after the pandemic, now the global inequality usually worsens and different countries, different nations, they have to protect their interests. So I'm going to end it here. So things usually will get worse. 
I'm not saying there's going to be another war. I have no idea, but things are going to get worse. Now, one very interesting development next year, actually, is the expansion in the BRICS. If you look at all the members, it's a combination of all major suppliers, major demand for commodities, like food, energy. And if you look at the geographic location, it cuts out actually the West. So basically US, UK, Europe, and then Australia and New Zealand. It's very interesting. I think that's going to be one development that matters for a long time going forward. Marvin Chen, wrap it up for us. Yeah, I think uh, geopolitical risk is uh, high up there. It's obviously going to take some time to play out. But, uh, you know, next year is a big election year. Not only we have the U.S., we have regional elections in uh, Taiwan, South Korea, India. It's just a big election cycle year. So we think there could be a chance for increased market volatility, despite kind of the rosy picture that people are expecting. Also, we think, uh, you know, potential for developed market slowdown to be sharper than expected could derail some of the positive sentiment uh, going into next year. I yeah. did not expect Timothy Tan's answer. That was that was yeah. definitely left field. <laughs> <laughs> it's not left field. If we've been watching the markets as long as I have, yeah. it's something that most uh, bond market make people understand what's coming. They know, but they can't get out of it. Yeah. Our guests have been Marvin Chen, Senior Asia Equity Strategist, Stephen Chu, Chief Asia Currency and Rate Strategist, and. Timothy Tan, Asia Fixed Income and Credit Strategist, all with Bloomberg Intelligence. Gentlemen, it's been a fascinating conversation as we look into our crystal balls at what 2024 might bring. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and we look forward to having you on again. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, John. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having us. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong, and we wish you all a happy holiday, however you may spend it. And I'm John Lee. This podcast was edited by Clara Chen, and you've been listening to the Asia-Centric Podcast. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at cuttereconomicforum.com.